This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. By all accounts, 82-year-old Irene Silverman was in the prime of her life. She was in great health, both physically and mentally. Most would have been decades off if they tried to guess her age. Somewhat of a celebrity for her legendary parties over the years, Irene Silverman's passion for society and culture never faded as she grew older. The well-known socialite was the widow of a successful businessman who had amassed a fortune before his death in 1980. With houses all over the world, Irene eventually settled in her palatial multi-million dollar townhouse in New York City. The 19th century mansion is a Manhattan landmark, renowned for its expansive rooftop garden, marble interior, and grand rooms inspired by the Palace of Versailles in France. She had renovated the house many times over the years, and eventually decided to include several apartments. At an average price of $6,000 a month, the high-end units were more to Irene than just another source of income. Always the socialite, Irene wanted to be surrounded by different and interesting people, and her tenants were often exactly that. With nothing spared to create the luxury units, it wasn't long before famous writers, musicians, politicians, and even European nobility started to call the East 65th Street address home. To her tenants, Irene Silverman was more like a hostess than a landlady. She would regularly throw lunch and dinner parties for her renters, considering them more friends than paying live-ins. She prided herself on getting to know all those who stayed in her house before and after they moved in. Thorough background checks were always completed. References were required and always checked. Credit scores and criminal histories were always researched. When they moved in, it wasn't uncommon for renters to see Irene several times a day. She could often be found in her office, located on the main floor. With security top of mind, Irene had cameras installed in the entrance and had monitors placed in her office and private residence. There was a heavy iron front door and a strict policy that limited access. There was very little that happened under her roof that she wasn't aware of, and that's the way she liked it. Irene Silverman felt safe and secure in her house-turned-luxury apartment building, she was constantly surrounded by close friends and trusted employees, and it stayed that way for nearly 20 years. In March 1998, Irene's office received a phone call from a woman calling herself Eva Guerrero. She claimed to be the assistant to a successful designer named Manny Guerin, who was interested in a one-month lease. The assistant was told that while there were no available units at that time, when something opened up, they would receive a call. Several months later, an apartment became vacant and arrangements were made to visit. So, on Sunday, June 14, 1998, when a well-dressed young man arrived at the front door, Irene Silverman wasn't concerned. He introduced himself as Manny Guerin. The man was handsome, and she thought he had a pleasant smile. During their conversation, he subtly dropped a few key names, names Irene would have certainly recognized. He knew people within her network, and this made her more comfortable. The man was well-spoken and engaging, qualities that Irene always looked for in potential tenants. 
The more they spoke, the more she liked him. Manny Garin seemed to be the ideal tenant. All she needed were his references and identification, and the place was sure to be his. But Manny Garin didn't have the documents with him. He apologized and promised that they would be dropped off the next day. On any other occasion, this would have delayed the process, but Manny Garin said all the right things and seemed to know all the right people. Most importantly, Irene liked him. Still, she was about to tell him to return with the documents when the pleasant young man produced $6,000 in cash from his coat pocket. Despite her wealth, Irene grew up poor, a child of the Great Depression, and to her, cash was still king. Assuring her once again that he would have the references and ID by morning, she reluctantly agreed and showed the man to the vacant apartment. She had disregarded her own strict vetting policy. According to her friends, Irene regretted her decision right away. It took a few days before she knew something was strange with her newest tenant. He was asking her staff strange questions. Questions about the security system. Questions about Irene's schedule. Irene thought it was strange that he always faced away from the cameras. Even stranger, so did his guests. Just a week after Manny Garin moved in, Irene Silverman was ready to kick him out. Then, she vanished. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Manny Garin kept to himself. The cleaning service that was included in the $6,000 a month lease was not allowed in. He did his best to avoid contact with Irene and other residents, but made it a point to speak with Irene's staff. He asked some of them for tours of the house, insisting that he wanted to see as much of it as possible. According to her employees, it was during these tours that Manny Garin tried recruiting them to work for him, stating that Irene had been doing nothing but exploiting them. Irene and her staff were like family, and they told her about the strange conversations. This only added to the growing concern over their newest resident. During the first week, when he failed to provide identification and the list of references he promised, Irene tried to confront Manny Garin in his apartment, but he would never answer the door. On those occasions, she was certain that he was standing on the other side, watching her through the security hole. Manny Garin always seemed to be watching her. He'd been spotted hanging around outside her ground floor office several times, often when she was speaking with clients. It was clear to Irene that he was spying on her. And he was. She just didn't know why. Irene didn't know it, but one of the first things he did when he moved in was to tap her phone lines. As her concern grew, she speculated to friends that he was probably a drug dealer or running a crime operation out of the apartment. Irene was so convinced that something nefarious was happening under her roof that she took steps to call it out. When she thought he could hear it, she would say loudly that he would end up in prison. When she thought he was watching her from behind the apartment door, she would give him the finger. Irene Silverman did not try to hide her frustration from the man she called her bad tenant. A gifted artist, Irene even went as far as sketching a portrait of Manny Garin that included handwritten details about his physical description. Despite her growing concerns, 
She still didn't know what he was up to, or have any proof of criminal activity, so Irene decided not to call police. Like she had always done, Irene would take care of this matter herself. By the end of the first week, since Manny Guerin charmed his way into apartment 1B, Irene Silverman's frustration had turned into outright anger. She wanted him out, and had started the eviction process, effectively ending his one-month lease. Staff would later report they overheard an argument between the two, Manny Guerin insisting that he would get her the outstanding documents, and Irene telling him to leave. But he had no intention of leaving the multi-million dollar house. In fact, if his plan worked, the Manhattan mansion would soon be his. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. On the morning of July 5th, 1998, Irene asked one of her staff to walk the dog. She had spent Independence Day hosting friends late into the evening and wanted to spend the morning in slippers. The employee told authorities that the time had been around 11 a.m. 11 a.m., it turned out, would be the last time anyone would ever see Irene Silverman again. There was also one other person missing from the house, Manny Guerin. At 5 p.m., her staff contacted police. Police on the Upper East Side tonight are asking, where is wealthy widow Irene Silverman? The NYPD considers any case involving a missing person over the age of 60 a priority and spent the following days searching for her. At the same time, they were also looking for Irene's missing tenant, Manny Guerin. After 72 hours, authorities still had no leads. Their search had taken them across state lines and had involved dozens of interviews, and still there was no trace of either of them. Forensic teams had found no evidence of a struggle in or around the house. They had both simply vanished. But in a strange twist, investigators soon discovered the reason why they had been unable to find Manny Guerin on the streets. It turned out that he wasn't actually hiding at all. While police had been desperately searching for him, Manny Guerin had been sitting in a New York City jail. He'd been arrested the same day as Irene's disappearance by the NYPD and FBI on charges from a completely different case. Fortunately, a detective involved in the other case recognized a picture of Manny Guerin while watching a news report about the disappearance of Irene Silverman. The only thing was, his incarcerated suspect wasn't named Manny Guerin. In fact, Manny Guerin didn't exist. The young man Irene Silverman had called her bad tenant was actually 24-year-old Kenny Kimes. Kenny Kimes had been sitting in a jail cell for days, arrested by a joint task force for using a fraudulent check to buy a new car. Also, he wasn't alone when he was captured. Held behind bars with him was his 64-year-old mother, 
Sante Kimes. Irene Silverman had spoken to his mother a couple of times over the phone, but under a different name. It was Sante Kimes who called months earlier, posing as Manny Guerin's assistant, Eva Guerrero. The pair had been the subject of FBI and police investigations that stretched across half a dozen states and as far away as the Bahamas. They were the prime suspects in cases ranging from insurance and check fraud to murder. NYPD investigators looking into the disappearance of Irene Silverman were about to find out their main suspects were on the FBI's most wanted list of criminals. Sante Kimes had a long and disturbing criminal history dating back to her high school days when she was involved in a credit card scheme. In her 20s, it was shoplifting and setting things on fire. In her 30s, it was enslavement. In August 1985, federal prosecutors charged Sante Kimes with slavery. According to the indictment, Sante and her husband Kenneth Kimes Sr. had driven to Mexico and smuggled several teenage girls back into the U.S. with promises of full-time work and free housing. The girls were then kept as prisoners and forced to work 24 hours a day, with no pay. They were under constant threat of being locked in a closet for days at a time, of being burned by hot water or an iron, or of being punched and kicked. This lasted for years. When the trial started in 1986, Kenneth Kimes Sr., a successful businessman in the motel industry, accepted a plea deal, barely escaping jail time. Prosecutors consider the possibility that Kenneth Kimes Sr. may have been an unwilling participant and offered him the deal. But when it came to Sante's willingness to enslave the girls, the federal prosecutors had no doubts. They argued that she was a sadist, calling the abuse she inflicted torture. The U.S. District Court agreed, and Sante Kimes was found guilty of breaking federal anti-slavery laws. She was sentenced to a five-year prison term. In 1989, after serving just three of the five-year sentence, Sante returned to her family and to her life of crime. She and her husband were dealing with a $35 million civil lawsuit filed by the victims of the enslavement scheme, which was settled out of court in 1990. In October the same year, she was suspected of firebombing her lawyer's office after repeatedly threatening him with a malpractice suit. No evidence could be found linking her to the incident so no charges were ever brought against her. However, according to the FBI, there were no other suspects in the case. Arson wasn't the only thing keeping Sante busy that year. By the end of 1990, she had no less than six civil suits filed against her spanning from New Jersey to California, amounting to over $1 million. With more than two dozen known aliases and a talent for evading creditors and authorities, it's no shock that Sante Kimes did not pay a single cent in damages. In 1994, her husband died of what was believed at the time to be natural causes. His entire estate was left to his children from a previous marriage. Sante and Kenny were left with nothing. She did, however, manage to keep the news of his death a secret for a surprisingly long time. Kenny, who had been away at school, didn't find out about his father's death until he came home several months later. It took another couple of years for his children from the previous marriage to find out. By forging documents and providing a false social security number for her deceased husband, Sante had bought herself some time. The plan she devised was simple. 
steal as much of the fortune as she could. But executing the scheme would be a bit more challenging. Only her husband had access to the accounts, many of which were with a bank located in the Bahamas. So that's where Sante planned to go. But if it was going to work, she would need help. By the time the plan was ready, 19-year-old Kenny had dropped out of college, and the two, who had always been exceptionally close, were spending even more time together, plotting and scheming. Sante had found her partner in crime. In September 1996, Sante and Kenny flew to the Bahamas to carry out their plan to drain the offshore accounts. During their one-week stay, they made repeated visits to the bank in the capital city, Nassau. They had brought with them official-looking documents and were always dressed professionally. The well-forged paperwork should have made it clear that they had authorization, but a bank employee assigned to look into the accounts was becoming suspicious. He mentioned some of those concerns to Sante and Kenny during a dinner meeting. That was on the evening of September 5, 1996, and it was the last time that anyone saw him. The 55-year-old bank auditor had simply vanished, and by the time authorities were notified, so had Sante and Kenny. Unable to withdraw any of the money they desperately needed, the pair returned to their home in Las Vegas, Nevada, to regroup and figure out their next move. That would come in the form of insurance fraud when a fire broke out, destroying their house. Only, it wasn't technically their house. Investigators discovered that the deed had been transferred before the fire destroyed the property. According to the paperwork, the house actually belonged to a man named David Kasdan. The 63-year-old businessman lived in California and was an old acquaintance of Sante and her late husband. He had no idea the house was in his name. By forging Kasdan's signature on the right documents, Sante was able to squeeze as much value out of the house as she could. Not only had she made a claim on the $100,000 insurance policy, but she had also taken out a loan against the house for almost $300,000. The loan was also in David Kasdan's name, which came as a complete surprise to him. Not long after learning of the scam, he confronted Sante, insisting that she fix the problem. She did. On March 14, 1998, officers with the LAPD were called to a crime scene. When they arrived, they found the remains of David Kasdan lying in a dumpster not far from the Los Angeles International Airport. Authorities would later confirm that he had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber pistol. Although police suspected the mother and son team of being involved, there wasn't enough evidence at the time to press charges. Sante and Kenny didn't stick around long enough to find out how the investigation was going. They were already halfway across the country, heading toward their next scheme, stealing a multi-million dollar brownstone in downtown Manhattan. As Sante and Kenny Kimes drove toward New York City for their next target, they had no idea the FBI fugitive squad was searching for them. Over the last few months, they had written almost $100,000 in bad checks, including one that was used to steal the car they were now driving. That level of check fraud caught the attention of the Bureau. As they were heading east, agents were talking to another old acquaintance of Sante's, an ex-con who had done small jobs for her several times before. 
Hoping to avoid jail time for trafficking firearms, the man agreed to cooperate. Following the FBI's instructions, when Sante called him a couple of days before Irene Silverman vanished, he set up a face-to-face -face meeting. When they met on the evening of July 5th, just hours after the 82-year-old Manhattan socialite was reported missing, the FBI arrested them. For check fraud. Sante and Kenny couldn't believe their luck when they realized they had been arrested for bouncing checks. Kenny was so relieved that he reportedly offered to buy the arresting officers a round of drinks. Their luck, however, did not last long. As police were conducting an exhaustive search for Irene Silverman, the FBI and NYPD were starting to figure out who they really had in custody. Authorities in New York had collected police records from dozens of precincts across the country. The documents covered past and current investigations and painted a disturbing image. They were suspects in the disappearance of Elmer Holmgren, an alleged accomplice in an arson case involving another house owned by the Kimeses. They had also been suspects in the 1995 abduction of Jacqueline Levitz. The 62-year-old from Mississippi was the heiress to the Levitz furniture business. Her body was never found, and charges were never brought against Sante or Kenny due to lack of evidence. This time, though, things were different. The Kimeses appeared in court today with their lawyers, asking to be released on bail, making the point that this is just a charge of a bad check. Prosecutors, of course, argued against that, saying they had a history of fleeing, that there might be other more serious charges uh, pending, and the judge uh, bought that and did not release them. Following their surprise arrest, FBI investigators searched the Kimes' stolen car and shared what they found with detectives working on the Irene Silverman case. The list of items they cataloged included a large hunting knife, a dozen wigs, handguns, ammunition, syringes, a powerful sedative, a can of pepper spray, and the empty packaging for a stun gun. The list went on. Handcuffs, tens of thousands of dollars in cash, audio recordings containing hours of Irene's tapped phone conversations, and documents, lots of documents. The paperwork included forms used in real estate to transfer property and blank social security cards. There were pages containing Irene's signature written over and over as if someone had been practicing. There was a forged deed to Irene's house, forged power of attorney forms, and a list of Irene's bank accounts. Authorities also discovered Irene Silverman's passports, keys to her house, and checkbook. There was a to-do list for when they took over the Manhattan mansion, which included firing the staff, changing the locks, and kicking out the current tenants. Sante and Kenny had even written down how much it would cost to transfer Silverman's property once they had control. They had also written details of their many aliases and when they had been used. And there was a list of associates, including several that had gone missing or had been killed over the last few years, including David Kasdan, Elmer Holmgren, and the banker from the Bahamas. What authorities did not find among the treasure trove of incriminating items was any sign of Irene Silverman. It was a sensational set of crimes that made national news. The con artist and murder team of Sante Kimes and her son Kenny. The two became household names when they were indicted on charges of kidnapping and killing an elderly New York socialite. Kenny and Sante professed their innocence, claiming to have no knowledge at all of Irene's strange disappearance. 
They insisted that Irene was an old friend who often entrusted them with personal and business matters. Police weren't buying it. The NYPD kicked off one of the largest missing person investigations it had ever conducted. But ultimately, their efforts turned up nothing. Irene Silverman was gone, but prosecutors believed there was enough circumstantial evidence to charge them both with murder. The trial started in February 2000, a year and a half after Irene Silverman disappeared and was described by the New York media as the trial of the millennium. A Manhattan legend in the city's high society who became the target of a deadly real estate scam by two of the most dangerous grifters in the country? The story was practically made for the tabloids. It's a crime story in the headlines this week, fit for a movie plot. What began as a missing persons case in New York City has become a bizarre cross-country tale of deception, murder, and money. At the center of it all, a mysterious and possibly dangerous twosome. A mother and son, con artists, some call them, living on their wits and their charm. They're in jail, prime suspects in the disappearance of a wealthy Manhattan widow. The media had dubbed Sante and Kenny, Mommy and Clyde, a reference to the infamous pair, Bonnie and Clyde, who killed over a dozen people in the 1930s. Negative publicity, the public loves it. We sell, we're selling papers. Clearly, I'm slightly interesting these days. You know, I'm, I'm an inter interesting sh topic. But why me? Because I'm easy. I'm a foreigner. I'm out of town. They can just point the finger at the out-of-towner. There's always been a, an easy ability for people to just pick on someone who's not the local. There is no proof of me grifting or conning or killing. The two had been officially charged with the murder of Irene Silverman and were facing over a hundred other charges including wiretapping, conspiracy, burglary, forgery, possessing illegal firearms, and grand larceny. They pled not guilty to all of them. There's no crime. They don't know where the woman is. They manufactured a crime. What happened is, I'm sure that the world knows that New York is one of the most corrupt law systems in the world. They had no crime, no body, no reliable evidence, no witnesses, no witnesses, no witnesses, no witnesses. Their defense attorneys were confident that without a body or any substantial forensic evidence, Santi and Kenny would be acquitted. Prosecutors maintained that just the circumstantial evidence was more than enough to prove, without a doubt, the pair's guilt. The court heard testimony from two notaries who said Sante was disguised as Irene when she asked them to notarize a transfer document. They also heard from two people Sante and Kenny had recruited to work in the house. One was a homeless man, the other an employee at a restaurant. Their associate, turned FBI informant, went on to testify that he had sold them several weapons in the past, including a 22 caliber pistol, the same type used in the murder of David Kasdan. The audio recordings found in the stolen car revealed attempts by Sante to get details directly from Irene Silverman. In one recorded phone call, Sante, pretending to be a contest rep from Las Vegas, pressed Irene for her social security number in order to receive a vacation prize. The scam didn't work, and being played in court only served to showcase the lengths to which they went. Leading up to the trial, Sante and Kenny had done as many interviews as possible. Larry King, 60 Minutes, 
radio stations, and newspapers, but they usually didn't go well. At the beginning of the 60 Minutes interview, the host points out that it was unusual for murder suspects to be so open with the media just before a trial. That interviewer proved his point. Conspiracy theories and unbelievable scenarios to explain everything away dominated their message. How would you like, on the second day of your arrest, to have the mayor come out and say you were guilty on international television? He said you were guilty. Oh, yeah. Not only that, they put up posters of us on the third day saying we were guilty. Posters where? Who, who? All over, on every street corner. What do you mean? They sent, you know, pictures of us like we who? were guilty in this disappearance. Then they even had vans driving around broadcasting our names. This is three and four days into Who's this. they? You don't know what these police are like in New York. You aren't hearing what's happening. I have people coming to me for books. You hear about, you know, the, the big things. You don't realize that these police are running wild in this city and that they are getting away with murdering the Constitution and that this case is a precedent case because if they get away with this, every American in this world is in trouble. During one television interview, their lawyers had to interrupt when Sante continued to brag about how talented an actor her son was, earning top grades in his college acting classes. The interview was cut short. By the end of the trial, prosecutors had presented over 125 witnesses and entered over 400 exhibits as evidence. The defense team decided it would not be in their best interest to have Sante and Kenny take the stand. They were concerned about what the pair would say if cross-examined. They were still confident that without a body, or any hard evidence, their clients would go free. This indictment is baseless. This indictment is based on no eyewitness evidence. Without a body, without any forensic evidence, it's a case which will be dismissed by any jury that has the opportunity to evaluate what there is. However, in May 2000, after deliberating for only four hours, jurors found the mother and son grifters guilty on all counts. They were both sentenced to over 100 years in prison. In the closing remarks, the judge called them sociopaths. When you have people who have no remorse and no conscience, I believe they have to be jailed for the rest of their lives because if they were not, Santi and Kenneth Kimes would go out and commit exactly the same kind of crimes tomorrow that they committed before. In a strange incident, several months after the trial, Kenny was in the middle of an interview when he took the reporter hostage. It turned out that during the investigation of Irene Silverman, evidence emerged linking them to the murder of David Kasdan. Kenny didn't want his mother to face the death penalty in California, so for over four hours, he held a pen to the reporter's throat, demanding that his mother avoid extradition. The moment he removed the pen from her throat, he was tackled by guards. The hostage stunt did not stop them from being moved. In March 2001, the two were extradited to California. The difference in the David Kasdan case was that authorities had his body. Kenny eventually pled guilty to his murder, sparing his mother and himself possible execution. In 2004, they were both found guilty in that murder and sentenced to life, plus 125 years. During the trial, Kenny also confessed to killing Irene Silverman. He said that when Irene was alone, 
He and his mother incapacitated her with 3,000 volts from the stun gun. They dragged her into his apartment, where Kenny strangled her. He then stuffed her 4-foot, 10-inch body into garbage bags, which he then placed inside a duffel bag. The two then drove to New Jersey, where they threw the bag into a random dumpster. Cynthia and Kenneth Kimes, uh, these are two of the most cunning and probably two of the most evil criminals that we've ever dealt with. Sante Kimes died in a New York State prison in May 2014. She was 79. Kenny Kimes remains behind bars in California. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Comments? Questions? Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.